0: You've got your Bibles this morning. I want you to turn to the book of John, the ninth chapter of the book of John. And we're going to be continuing our series of messages today called The Grave Robber. And we're going to be looking at the next to last miracle that we're going to look at. So we've been looking at miracles for the last five weeks. We have this week and then next week we have the last miracle to talk about. And we're going to be examining or have been examining what impact those miracles have on our lives. And so uh, I want to start today with the story of a man that many of you probably are not aware of and probably do not know, and it's uh, this particular man. It's the guy in the red shirt. His name is Randolph Arledge. His story starts before this, but the major turning point in his life came on August 30th, 1981, when just outside of Corsicana, Texas, there was a young woman found, in the woods, off the side of the road, who had been stabbed to death. Now, Randolph was in Corsicana that day, visiting some family, returned home the next day to Houston, and while he was in Houston, uh, some of his friends said they wanted to go on a a, a trip together, and so he got in the van with this couple of guys, and we don't know for sure or not whether he knew this or not, but the van they were riding in was stolen. Stolen. And they went on a road trip together and were eventually captured in Tennessee. And when he and the other two guys were captured in Tennessee, they were interrogated, they were investigated, and the two guys said, we've got some information on our third member. And his two other friends said that while they were on their road trip, he confessed to killing a woman in Corsicana, Texas. And so based on that testimony and the fact that he was in Corsicana, they convicted him of the murder of this woman. So in 1984, he was convicted of the crime and sent to prison. In 2011, a group working on his behalf, because he always maintained his innocence, discovered there was some physical evidence that could not be tested in 1981 that could be tested today. And they went and had it DNA analyzed and discovered that all of the physical evidence pointed to someone other than Randolph Arledge. On May 3rd, 2013, Randolph was exonerated for any involvement in the crime. I don't know if you did math there real quickly, but he served 29 years for a crime He didn't commit. Can you imagine what that would be like? The shame your family endured for 29 years as they thought you had committed this crime. The scrutiny your life was examined with during the time when you were accused and convicted. The stigma that went with you and probably still does go with you to this day. Because of being accused of something that you had nothing to do with. And John... Chapter 9, we're going to read the story of a guy who had a stigma that had a cloud of suspicion around him. Not, we don't know how many years, but not from a certain point in his life, from the very moment he was born. Now to understand John chapter 9, we have to talk a little about John chapter 8 and to understand what Jesus is doing here. And in John chapter 8, Jesus is at one of their greatest festivals, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he's in the courtyard of the temple talking to people. And in the midst of that, he makes this statement. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the reason that this was important for this particular event that um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of the time that God protected the Israelites when they did not have a permanent home. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would all go out into these makeshift homes in the middle of the city to kind of symbolize that God took care of them in the wilderness when he put the light before them, the fire by night, the cloud by day. And so what they would do to celebrate is... On certain nights, and it led up to the final night of the celebration, they would gather in Jerusalem, and in the pitch-black darkness, they would illuminate the night with these four huge... uh, The best way I can think of it is like uh, the Olympic torch, you know, when they light the Olympic torch, like four of those. In fact, we've got a picture of this. Now, this is um, a modern kind of understanding, but ignore this stuff around, because they wouldn't have had this stuff around in their day. But you see one, two... Three, four lights lit up. Now, this isn't as clear of a picture, but the next picture shows a little bit more what we're talking about. You see those four huge lights. And in the midst of that celebration with these lights symbolizing that God had lit the world in darkness, Jesus steps out and says, By the way, I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees, wait a minute, you can't claim that. You can't claim that you are the light of the world because only God can claim that. Do you keep seeing that Jesus keeps saying things that only God can say? There's only one real explanation for that, right? You either believe he is or he isn't, but his claim is that he is God. So here's what I want you to understand about John 8 to John 9, and then we're going to get into John 9. John chapter 9 is a physical illustration of the reality of Jesus being the light of the world. Now, some of you grew up in church, right? Like most of you here. All right, those of you that grew up in church, what is John chapter 9 about? What does Jesus do? He heals a blind man, right? So he gives light to a guy who had previously had only darkness, so you have to understand that before we even get into John chapter 9 because I want you to see that this is more than just healing a blind man. This is Jesus showing, I am the light of the world. Let's look at John chapter 9. starts in verse 1 and says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Born Blind. Now, some of you in this room no longer do because you've had issues with it. For most of us, though, we take our sight for granted. Amen? How many of you here wear some sort of corrective lenses, contacts, or something? All right? I'm going to put my hand down. I don't. But this is what I've heard. All right? this is my, my wife, my wife who um, grew, had very, don't tell her I told you all this, all right, had very bad eyesight, very bad vision. When we graduated from seminary and we're graduating from college and all that, she she had LASIK. Anybody here had LASIK? All right. This was this was before she was on my payroll or our payroll. Right. This is when she was still on Phil and Maryland's payroll. She had LASIK surgery, and she talks about that moment when she woke up and everything was clear, and she thought she'd never take that for granted. Right. But we do. Our eyesight. I, is absolutely amazing absolutely do you realize that as you're growing up here's what happens your mind takes a picture through your eyes of certain things and here's the amazing thing when you say certain words your mind remembers the picture your eyes took you don't have to go back into photo stream or your camera roll or find the pictures out it automatically catalogs and there are millions of things that you have cataloged images in your mind of. For instance, if I say the word, the White House, you almost immediately think of this. you You don't have to worry about it. I mean, in your mind, it comes there. And it's not just specific things, it's abstracting. So if I, for instance, said the word lake, in your mind, you would come up with what a lake looks like. This is what my mind comes up with. This is because I'm from West Tennessee, anybody know what lake that is that's real foot, right? And so when I hear we went to the lake in my mind, I automatically think of these the the trees coming out of the water. I think of eagles that are there. I think I, in my mind, I have mental images. I think of the catfish that I eat there, right So you have these mental images now some of you grew up around Old Hickory Lake, so in your mind, you think immediately of old Hickory Lake or you grew up around a different one or maybe a When I say lake, even though to you it was a lake, it's really a pond on your granddaddy's land, all right? That's what you think of. Or when I say the word car, this is what comes to my mind immediately. This was my senior year car right here. Senior year. My dad got it for me when I was uh, starting to be a senior in high school. Before that, I had a Regal Limited Edition. Woo! Two-tone, brown and champagne. You could take the steering wheel and do like this and it would just bob, all right? When I started senior year, my dad decided I couldn't roll like that anymore. And he bought me a Mazda RX7. Now this is what my dad did. He went and bought it, surprised me, gave it to me. I remember he, he handed me the keys and he said, Lyle, this thing will go 120. I said, how do you, don't ask me how I know that. Just know that it will. Do not go that fast. And so my senior year, I drove this thing around man, it was a good car, except when it wouldn't run, which was quite often. But uh, so that's why it was my senior year As I went to college. Dad said, you can't drive that thing to college because it, it broke down quite a bit. But it, when it ran, it was amazing. Now for you, your image of a car may be something dependable, or it may be that first vehicle you had. All right. But there's a mental image. When I say car, you immediately think of something or even pet. This is what I think of when I think of pet, because it's what I've always wanted. Golden Retriever. If anybody's got one that's already house trained and uh, free, and you have a, a fence for the backyard of our house to pay for, when you give it to us, I'll, I'll take it, all right? This is my dream dog. Now, some of you have a different one. Now, if you've got a cat, we have to talk about those kind of issues. But when you think of pet, maybe it's the pet you had when you grew up. I also think of my pet Charlie. I had a collie when I grew up. Looked like Lassie. So these mental images come into our head. Now here's what you have to think about. This man was born blind. He didn't have any of this. See, we just kind of run past that verse. But do you think about the situation he's in? He never experienced the miraculous thing that you're experiencing right now just seeing do you realize that your eye that the retinas of your eye is doing 10 billion calculations per second one of the biggest supercomputers in the world right now uh, the cray supercomputer it has been estimated that it would take that computer all at least 100 years to do the number of calculations that your eye does in a second And here's the thing that most of us don't realize. Our eyesight, we're born legally blind. Do you realize that babies could only see 18 inches in front of their face? Which is probably good because some of the faces that you make at babies would scare them to death if they understood what you were doing. And between the time that you are born and 18 months, your brain catalogs all that information and forms these images and creates the pathways to your brain that will allow you to see. In fact, if you took an eye patch and you put it over a child from the time they were born until they were three or four years old, they would never see out of that eye because that's the window of opportunity for these pathways to grow. And so here's what I want you to understand. This guy thought his window of opportunity of ever seeing was gone. We don't know how old he is. We know that he's at least a teenager. We know that because when his parents are questioned about what happened, they say, he's old enough, ask him. And to be old enough in that age would have been at least 13. We probably think he's closer to 19 or 20. But whatever age it is, his window of opportunity had passed. When it says in there that Jesus came across this guy who had been born blind, it meant that he literally thought his chance of ever seeing was gone, that it was too late. That it would never happen. And here's what we have to understand. And here was what this story teaches us. And it's an amazing story. Because you know what's going to happen, right? Jesus is going to do what? He's going to heal him. Here's what's interesting. If you just go from the the biology of it, when Jesus healed him, he would have had to do more than just cause the eyes to kind of uh, open. He would have had to create the synapses, the things that went back to the brain in order for the eye to be able to function. So it's more than just taking a cloud away, it is miraculous. But here's what we have to understand. When it comes to the economy of Jesus, your window is never closed. In fact, windows of opportunity open up every day. With Christ, the opportunity for Him to do something amazing in your life is new this morning and as fresh as it has ever been. In the Book of Lamentations, you know this, his mercies are new every morning. Some of y'all think that's from the song Great Is Thy Faithfulness, but it actually comes from Lamentations. Morning by morning his mercies I see. So what do you what do you think the window of opportunity is closed on? What have you thought? This is it, it's over. Never going to happen. I've been to too many specialists. I've tried too many things. I've gone to too many places. I've given up hope that it can ever happen. Never will it happen. With Jesus, we never say never. Jesus comes across this man born blind. And you know the story, right? His disciples ask him a question. Now, here's the thing. We don't, the only reason we see that Jesus may have healed this guy is because of the question the disciples ask. The disciples ask him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus, what happened to this guy? Now think about this. Not only has this guy lived for all of his life without any sight, he has lived for all of his life, 19, 20, 25, 30 years, whatever it is, with the stigma of someone thinking he did something bad or his parents did something bad for him to be like that. So it's not only a physical reality that is the problem there. There is also this reality that they thought that there was a sin so deep within him that it prevented him from having one of the most basic human functions. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light. You see him going back to verse, chapter 8? He says, listen, it's not this guy's fault. Now, here's the thing. They really thought. They, now, no one can deny that sin causes physical problems. Amen? Amen? All right? I'm not going to ask. Who has experienced this in life? But there are the immediate effects of sins. Things like people that drink too much and they wake up in the morning with a hangover. Some of you acting like I don't know what it would be. It's a hangover, all right. So they experience the physical reality of the sins' involvement. There are some people that create. problems or cause issues by the sin they do and so jesus is not denying here that sin has impacted us in some way in fact scripture is clear on the fact that sin is the cause for the brokenness of the world it's the reason the overarching reason but jesus says it's dangerous that didn't take and say the general idea that sin causes problems and apply it specifically to people and say it must mean that they're sinners His point here is, if that were the case, if he was blind because he sinned or his parents sinned, guess what? We'd all be blind. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous. No, not one. All of us, like sheep, have been led astray. All of us sin. And so if sin is the particular cause of blindness, then every one of us would wake up without seeing. He says... That this particular one was born this way. That the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm going to tell you a real uncomfortable thing, but it's the reality of life. Sometimes God allows things in our lives that are painful and difficult. In order that we might bring glory to him by the way we handle it. Sometimes God allows difficult things in our lives. In order that we might glorify him by the way we handle it. And one of the things that you and I have to understand, and one of the things that is difficult to understand is this, the ultimate goal of your life is not pleasure, it's not comfort, it's not happiness, it's not the American dream. The ultimate goal of your life is to glorify God. And whatever, this is what it means to be spiritually mature. Can I just tell you what spiritual maturity looks like? I mean, we know what physical maturity looks like. We know what maturity looks like in general in life. But here's what spiritual maturity looks like. Spiritual maturity is saying to God, I will deal with and handle and do whatever is required of me to bring glory to you and your name, regardless of how good I feel about it. We have to remember that our ultimate goal is to glorify God. That means you as an individual, your ultimate goal is to bring glory to Him. Do you think if this guy would have been given a choice, he would have been born blind or he would have been born with sight? Sight. I mean, you know this. Think about your biggest struggle in life. Would you have preferred to not have that struggle? Listen, I wear an insulin pump on my side and if I could throw it away and never use it again, I would gladly do it. But since I was 12... So for 27 years, the reality of needing to do something about my problem with diabetes is there. If given the choice at 12, I would not have chosen this. If given the choice at 30, I would not have chosen this. Given the choice today, I would not have chosen it. But I asked myself the question, it is what it is. And God knew it was coming, so what can I do to bring glory to Him through it? Now, some of you are dealing with things much more difficult than just maintaining a blood sugar level. And it's easy to ask in the middle of that, why, God? Why? I thought you'd never allow this kind of thing to happen. But the question we ask is not, why, God? The question is, what do you want to do with it, God? How can I bring glory and honor to your name, God? Can I tell you that this reality, if we remembered this, it would change the dynamics of the way we talk about church The way we talk about our lives, the way we talk about each other, and the way we talk about our suffering. You know the old story is that churches fight over everything, including the color of the carpet. Right? Amen? We remodeled this place a few years ago, and aren't you glad we didn't have any discussion about what we were doing? Right? Jerry, you on that committee, nobody said anything about it, did they? Not a word. word. Some of you still, you're, you're settling, all right? Think about how our discussions would change about things like that if we remembered this. You know what this means? Is that selfishness is not an option. That preferences is not an option. That what we want is not an option. It's about what God intends to do through us. Y'all are thinking, this is a long summer. We're only like two verses in. We're going, all right. We must remember that our ultimate goal is to glorify God. So what happens after that? Jesus says, these things... He then, y'all know this, I've done this before, <sighs> y'all love that every time. That's what it says, right? He what? What's that word? Y'all tell me that word. Spit. Y'all know what that is, right? Y'all not too dignified to not know what that is? He spit. Where'd he spit? On the ground. And what'd he do? He made money. Now, here's the interesting thing while he's doing this. This is why when the, by the way, you know, we're not going to get there because we we're not going to have time. But, you know, when the Pharisees start quizzing the guy, they keep asking him, well, how did he heal you? How did he heal you? What did he do? It's because Jesus broke three laws here. Three. Sabbath laws. Woo! You get the idea Jesus doesn't really care about their laws? He broke three. And none of it had to do with spit. First of all, you weren't supposed to need on the sabbath. And they would have considered making mud, kneading, even if it was with your own saliva. Now, here's the the general idea. All right, there there are other things. He you can't heal on the sabbath unless it's a Can, can you imagine they had that rule nobody heal on the sabbath unless it's life threatening. No doctors' offices open, nothing allowed on the sabbath. The, can you What's the general reason that people are affronted by spit? That when I did that, you went Ugh. Besides, it's nasty. I know that. Germs, personal stuff. I mean, in almost every society that has ever existed, if you spat in someone's face, it was the ultimate sign of disrespect. And I'm not talking about those of you that sit on the front row and accidentally catch some of my peas, all right? I'm talking about intentional. Here's why I think he did it. You would not believe the amount of stuff written on why did he spit on the ground. I think he's showing... A reference back to the moment he created. When he formed man out of the dust of the ground. Now, you realize in order to make man out of dust, he's going to have to pull some things together. And our bodies are consistently made of what is the most water. So he spits on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. In case you missed, he spit. It uses saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes. Isn't that interesting? He anointed with his spitball. The man's eyes, we don't have time to go into how God uses ordinary things to do extraordinary stuff, with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, here's what I want to talk about the rest of our time, and we're not going to read the rest of it because it would take a long time. But you know, many of you know, if you don't, you can read the rest of chapter nine. But a debate happens, right? Some of his friends are like, is this a guy we don't know? What happened? Is this the guy we've always seen? And they start questioning. They go to the Pharisees just to get uh, advice from the local religious leaders. And the Pharisees says, well, bring him to us. And he brings him to us. And they say, well, what happened? He said, well, he healed me. And he goes, well, how did that happen? He can't do that. It's the Sabbath. And he, oh, he did what? So he spit. And so he worked. And so he did things that he wasn't supposed to do. Nobody that's doing that can have the authority of God because he's sinning. Now, here's what I want you to know. When God begins to work in and around your life, your focus will determine whether you see it or not. Everybody got your hands? Show me your hands. Some of you are like, I can't go up that high, just put them down here, all right? Do you know that you have one eye that's dominant than the other? Okay, here's here's how you can find out. Take your hands, put them out in front of you, make a triangle, all right? Pick something to focus on. I'm going to use Doc Hagen. Right there you are, Doc, all right? Y'all can focus on me or the TV or whatever. So you got both eyes open, you see your object, everybody say yes. Y'all weren't very good with that, but we'll go with it, all right? Now, if you close one eye and then open both, and you close the other eye and open both, one of them will make the object move. You see that? Some of you don't have your hands up. That means you're not doing it. Steve Johnson, I see you back there, all right? All right? Let's get your head. Thank you. All right? You see that? So here's the thing. All right, you can put them down. Except Steve, he's got to keep them up the rest of the sermon. <laughs> That doesn't make a big difference in life, but it does if you're trying to aim at something. And if you close the wrong eye, you'll miss every time. The Pharisees had closed the wrong eye. And so they miss the work of Jesus in their midst. And here's what I want for you, church. I believe God's in the midst of doing some great stuff here at First Baptist, but I believe that he wants to do more and more and more. But if you keep the wrong eye closed, you're going to miss it. And honestly, some of you, and I'm not pointing out, I don't know who it is because that's between you and God. Some of you have got the wrong eye closed. And you're more worried about comfort and what's, what's good for you and what ought to happen in your mind instead of what God intends to do. That's true in your own life. Maybe you've got something that's been going over and over and you wish you would take care of itself and it just hasn't and God is wanting to do it and you're not focusing On the real the reality of God doing it. With God there are no windows that close an opportunity. With God his glory is the most important thing for our lives, and with God we've got to focus on the right thing, or we'll miss it. Let's pray to God.